this week we're going to look at a different gift that Jesus gives to his people, and that is the gift of peace. Now, peace is a mega theme in the Bible. And at the core of this mega theme of peace is this idea that we as people cannot manufacture peace on our own, and the peace that we really need can only come through Jesus. Now, I want to repeat that because it's the premise or the hypothesis of the entire sermon. As humans, we cannot get real, lasting peace on our own. The only way to get real peace is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's this passage in John 14 that talks about a gift that Jesus was going to give to his people. And you're like, okay, Jesus is going to give us a gift. What gift? And think about it. If you could ask for a gift from Jesus, what would you ask for? Would you ask for the Lexus with the bow on it, right? I see the commercials every year. I've never known anyone to get one of those. So if you know somebody, let me know. But that's, I don't think that happens very often. Would you ask for a money tree? That'd be cool, right? We could have unlimited finances. Would you want more of like an X-Men style gift, like Cyclops size or something? Like what gift would you want? Well, here's what Jesus says in John chapter number 14. He says, peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You get that? I am going to give to you a qualitatively different peace, a peace that's unlike what the world has to offer. I'm going to gift it to you. And because of this peace, your hearts can calm and settle. Now, that's a good gift. And you're, and you're left kind of with the question of, okay, if Jesus is giving this gift out, how might I get this gift of peace if, if I would want that? And here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there are peace wanters, there's a peace holder, and there's a peacemaker. And if you understand those three categories, then you'll get literally like a mega theme of the Bible. So first, let's start with the peace wanters. This is the idea that there are people that need peace. Who are the people that need peace? Well, the Bible would put it this way, all of us. Not like a select group of humanity, but humanity in general are people that need peace. And we didn't always need it. The Bible presents this idea that we used to be at peace. We used to be at peace with creation. We used to be at peace with each other. And we used to be at peace with God. But in comes sin. In comes wrong. In comes selfishness. And with that selfishness comes disaster and calamity and turmoil and a lack of peace. And now there's not peace with God, but there's hiding from God. Now Cain is slain Abel and humanity starts to war against itself. Now creation groans and there's no peace to be had. And we're left searching, wanting yearning for peace but not having peace this is why if you think about it for two seconds this is why the Nobel Peace Prize is one of the greatest awards that can be given to a group or to an individual on an annual basis a global award why would we put so much emphasis on the Nobel Peace Prize well because we need peace you know what the bloodiest history in all of mankind's history has been or the bloodiest century, excuse me. Bloodiest century in all of mankind. 20th century, last century, the 1900s. More war, more violence, more death than ever before. Estimated 187 million people died in war in the 1900s. Like, what we're talking about the century that I and most of you were born in, okay? Not like forever ago. 
bloodiest century. And here we are, these people that talk of peace and, and want, and we think well, we have technology and we've grown up, and now we have a Nobel Peace Prize. Maybe this is getting better. No, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Peace is something that eludes us often. Napoleon had it right when he said, if you want peace, prepare for war. That's how humans operate. We get peace by the sword. We get peace by squashing our enemies. We're taxed large sums of money to employ a police force in our communities, otherwise known as keepers of the peace. Why? Because we understand the peace doesn't keep itself, right? Every domestic dispute and every suicide and every homicide and every robbery is a testimony to the reality that the peace doesn't keep itself and you need people to work hard to try to keep it. Today actually is a day, it's our Shop with the Heroes Day. We have some families amongst us that, uh, that we are seeking to bless and love on today and send out shopping at Walmart with some of our quote-unquote heroes our first responders from our community will pair up children and we'll pair them with firefighters and police officers and EMT. Why would we say that a police officer is a hero? That, that's what, as a church, that's what this pastor believes. Because they would put their life on the line and go through a lot of turmoil and a lot of violence and a lot of hardship and a lot of danger in an effort, while not perfectly, but sincerely trying to keep the peace. And instead of you know, arguing to defund them or should we give them money or not, maybe we should employ them because the peace doesn't keep itself. Like that's, that's the idea in the Bible of peace is lacking. Peace is wanting. We have to try hard to manufacture it, but we come up empty-handed. This is why when the angels declared at the birth of Jesus, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, that the shepherds did not look back at the angels and say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. We already got peace, you know? Return to cinder. Why do I need two of these? No one said that. They all were receptive to a message that was music to their ears because there is not peace on earth. And most people try to make it through the war zone of life so that maybe one day they can rest in peace. And that's, that's us. That's humanity, people that are at odds with each other, people that are not just at odds with each other, but people that are at odds with God is what the Bible says. That horizontally and vertically in our relationships, we are at odds with each other and God. Why? Because of our sin. You know how the Bible describes humanity by default? It's just how we are naturally. This is language that the Bible uses. I'm not gonna use my own words, I'll use it. Quote, that we're far off when it comes to our relationship with God, we're far off. We're foreigners. We're enemies. We're, quote, at enmity. The Bible presents people, humans, as those that are in desperate need of reconciliation and peace with God and that we do not have it. And here's, here's the big idea. Here's all I'm trying to communicate in this point. We try hard to manufacture peace on our own, but we are left wanting and if you have any self-honesty, you would attest that that's true. Now, the solutions we come up with may vary, but we all can recognize we're not at peace with each other. We don't easily get along. We're not at peace with God. So what do we do? Well, there's a peace holder in the Bible. The Bible presents this idea that while we are without peace, God is not that way. 
that God is, quote, the God of peace, you would also find that you have this idea of the peace of God being passed on to people at times, that the God of peace can give the peace of God to people, which is different than what we normally have. And it's important that you understand that these two go together, that you don't get the peace of God without the God of peace. You, you have to have both of them. This, uh, I've told you this before, but my wife and I, we dated long distance for a year at the onset of our relationship. We had met for a few days, and then I went to Arkansas where I was getting my bachelor's degree. She was in California, and we started a long distance relationship. And my wife began to send me, and I began to send her via the mail, gifts at Christmas and Valentine's Day and birthdays and those sorts of things. And I can still vividly remember the excitement of opening up some of those first presents, those first communications of affection, those first letters with perfume sprayed on them, right? So I'm, I'm not that old, but we were still in like letter writing days, okay? Like the iPhone had just come out, FaceTime wasn't a thing, and so we text on our Blackberries, if you remember that, and, uh, and we sent each other, you know, phone calls and letters. And it was so sweet to get the gifts of Maggie. But then we, I moved to Southern California and we dated for a year in person for the second year of our relationship. And of course we got married. And since then, now at Christmas and Valentine's and birthdays, I don't just get the gifts of Maggie. Now I get the Maggie of the gift, right? I get both of them. And the Maggie of the gift is way better than the gift of Maggie. But I want to be with her. And the Bible communicates this idea that it is possible for the peace wanters to have not just the peace of God, but the God of peace. And to have both. Now the question is, and this is the million dollar question, how? If I need a qualitatively better peace, and God has this qualitatively better peace, and Jesus is somehow offering it as a gift, how do I get that gift? How do I get that peace? And that's where you have to understand the peacemaker. The idea in the Bible is that this is only available because there was a peacemaker in the name of Jesus who makes us available to us. This is what the Jewish people had longed for for so long. If you, if you look in the Old Testament of the Bible, uh, you, you find that there were these Messiah prototypes who had stepped onto the scene and had ushered in a temporary peace. You would find Moses and Joshua and David and all of these people, Esther, who brought about a peace for the people that was short-lived and temporary, even in its effect, that it was only peace for so many people. And they, the people began to long for someone who would bring in a peace that was deeper and fuller and richer and long-lasting. And the latter prophets in Daniel and in Isaiah, they begin to prophesy of a Messiah that will one day come, not with a temporary peace, but with a peace that is full and rich and bright and will grow. Daniel talks about in Daniel 7, this son of man who comes in power and glory and thwarts the enemies and, and brings an end to all the evil and all the injustice and ushers in peace. Isaiah actually is this really classic Christmas verse. You probably would see this slapped on cards and even in some of the messaging of the season. But Isaiah 9, he begins to talk about this Messiah and says this, unto us, a son is given, unto us a child is born, excuse me, and a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah begins to tell about this God who would become a baby and in so doing would be the Prince of Peace. And when Jesus comes, we learn that he's here to be the peacemaker and to take the peace holder and the peace wanter and to bring them back together so that we as people could now have the God of peace and the peace of God. This is how Colossians would say it. And I, I want you to forgive me for giving you biblical birdshot today. I know that we're hitting like verses all over the place today, but I'm trying to get the scope and sequence of what the Bible says about peace. And listen to this. Don't tune out. Listen to these words. They're important. Jesus, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be in earth or whether they be in heaven, you, humans, that were sometime alienated and you were enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. You get, you get what that says? That says that we as people were far from God because of our beliefs and our behavior. In our minds and in our wicked works, our belief and behavior, we ostracized ourselves from God. We were far from him. We were alienated. We were enemies with him. And Jesus comes and by the blood of his cross, he makes peace and begins to reconcile or bring back together God and man. That's what it says. That is literally the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus in a nutshell that Jesus would be our peacemaker. That we are people who, if once again, if we're honest, we look around in the world, and yes, we see beauty. Of course, we see the snow. The snow's pretty this morning. I was thankful for it. Normally on a Sunday, Pat and pastoral minds were like, don't snow on Sunday. People are not going to come. You know, we hate that. But I woke up this morning and it was white, but it was just a little bit. I was like, perfect. This is fantastic. It won't keep too many people away, but it'll look good. We see that. We see the Christmas trees. We hear good music. There's beauty. But we also know and we see the brokenness and the hurt and the families that are ripped apart and the, and, and the the drugs that are pumping through our society and all the problems and all the hurt and all the grief. And we see brokenness. But we look in, right? And in, we see some good intentions sometimes and we see that we at times try to be a moral person, but inside we see brokenness, don't we? Tell me if I'm lying. We see inside of us that we, that we do wrong. Sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's not. But we do. And we do damage to other people. We do damage to ourselves. We sin. Sometimes it's our passive, passive indifference, and sometimes it's our outright rebellious behavior. But we sin, and there's this problem, and it starts to, to will away at our relationships with each other, and there's certainly a, a, a barrier of separation between us and God because of our sin. We're sinful. He's holy. Those two don't go together. It's water and oil. And Jesus comes to say, let me make peace. Let me reconcile. Let me pay for your sins. And a, a just God won't punish sin, but a loving God wouldn't offer us a way out. So his love and justice both come to bear on the cross. 
punishing our sin but making a way of escape so that now we can be reconciled back to God. This is why Isaiah would talk about Jesus and would say that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, not his own, for ours. He was bruised for our iniquities. He, uh, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. What does that mean? The chastisement of our peace was upon him. It means that for us to have peace, he was punished. So by his stripes, we are healed. But he takes our sin and he dies on a cross paying for it to offer us peace, to clean us up, to reconcile us, to mend us. This is why now those that know Jesus could say in, in, with exclamation points, in like a Romans 5, that if we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Now I'm, I have right standing with God because of my faith in Jesus. And so now I have peace with God and the God of peace. I heard one pastor put it this way, and I think that this sums it up beautifully. He told the story of a boy who was 13, 14 years old and had a cat that he loved. And this cat, as cats are prone to do, wanted to do its own thing, right? And it went out of the house and was, it was tough to control, you know, constantly prissy and just wanted to do its own thing. And decided to climb a tree one day, right on the edge of this, like, you could call it a big creek, you could also call it a little river. This big creek right behind their house. I climbed up the tree, went on a branch, and sure enough, the branch broke, and this cat fell into the river on the branch. As the branch begins to tumble along and go down the water, it is screeching, and it is, it is panicking, trying to hold on to this, but just flipping in the water and, and drowning itself. And the branch goes right by a rock, about three foot in diameter, and this cat somehow manages to get off of the log onto this rock, and now it's, it's stable, but it's stuck in the middle of this little river. And the boy hears this commotion, and he goes out, and he sees the cat, and he decides that, like, I, I want to go save the cat. And it was, it was to his waist, and it was tough for him to wade through this, but he could get through it, and it wasn't super dangerous for him. So he wades out, he gets to the rock, and here this cat that's in turmoil and panicking, instead of being receptive and just like, oh, thank you for saving me, begins to hiss and claw and scratch at what would be his savior, and the boy understands that if I want to save my cat, I'm going to have to take some damage. But sure enough, out of love, he does. He scoops up the cat, and it bites him, and it claws. I mean, it is just panic. It's out of its mind. And he absorbs it all, and he takes it back to safety, and then it begins to calm down and have peace again. And the point of that story is that the Bible presents humans as cats on a rock who are there of our own making, panicked, without peace, clawing at the one who would save us, right? He comes to, with peace, and what do we do? We nail him to a cross. Now, in the wisdom of God, he uses that to his glory in, in salvation in such an unbelievable way. But the people that he's there to save crucify him. But in wisdom, through the blood of that cross, through absorbing our hisses, and scratches, he brings us over and makes a way and provides peace for us. That's the story of Jesus. It's the story of the gospel in a nutshell. Now, if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus, my encouragement to you today would be simply this. Put your faith in Jesus. You're not going to get real peace 
any other way. You're not going to get peace through another religion. You're not going to get peace through your own efforts. You're not going to get peace for that relationship. You know, my last eight relationships didn't provide me peace, but this one will. It's not going to work. It won't come from the bottle. Ho, ho, ho to the bottle I go is a lot of people's solution for Christmas time. It's not coming that way. It's only coming through Jesus. And if you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus, then put your faith in him. He died on a cross for your sins. He was buried and he rose again miraculously. And if you put your faith in him, you can be justified. The sin is gone. You can have right standing with God and you can have the peace of God. Now, I'm smart enough as a pastor to know my audience and to know that the majority of you in this room are like, Pastor, been there, done that. Thank you for the reminder of the Christmas story. That was told a little more creatively than I would have been able to. And, and that, that was illuminating. You kept my attention. But I didn't learn anything new. You know? I, I already know the good news of Jesus. Thank you. Well, okay, for you, let me apply it. Because what the Bible is, is, is so beautifully begins to take this concept of the peace wanter and the peace holder and the peacemaker, and it begins to apply it in ways that are so practical and tangible, and I dare say ways that we have not yet worked out in our own lives that we need to. So, application one. If Jesus gives us peace with God, the, the foundation of our relationship with God should be one of security and peace not one of fear and being skittish. Now, this is important because some of you, your pastor or your priest or your parent, taught you that the fundamental relationship you should have with God is one of cowering, that he's a God who's just looking to, get, to find out whatever you did wrong, and as soon as you do something wrong, he's going to thump you, and he's going to get you, and he's going to smile about it. And there are a lot of people who understand, okay, I can have right standing with God, but they do not work out the implication that what that means is that God is not in heaven with a lightning bolt just looking to get me for the fun of it. That's not how it works. Out of love, he will discipline me to win me back and bring me back to righteousness. But the, the foundation of our relationship changes, and now we are able to say he's our father that I'm his dear child and he is my heavenly father. And if you understand that you have peace with God, then you should begin to view God through that filter of he's my loving heavenly father who wants what's best for me and will take care of me and that there's security in this relationship. I do not have to go to sleep with one eye open. I can be secure in my relationship with my father. Implication number two. Not only should our, the foundation of our relationship with God now change and be beautiful and healthier, our relationships with other Christians should be healthier. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to you, and I'm going to ask for your forgiveness in advance, not because you need for me forgiveness for reading the Bible. It's a good thing, kind of a novel idea in some churches. Like, we read the Bible in church. Like, it should happen. But I ask for your forgiveness because I will read this, and you'll probably be like, what exactly did you just read, okay? Because I'm not reading the whole section. I'm just taking a snippet. But let me read this to you. This is Ephesians chapter 2. But it communicates an idea that is so profound that you have to wrap your head around it. Ephesians 2, here's what it says. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes afar off, 
are made nigh by the blood of Christ. That sounds a lot like the Colossians verse we read earlier. For he is our peace who's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile us both unto God in one body by the cross. Thank God he reconciles us both to one body and God. Having slain the enmity thereby, and listen, he came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that are nigh. For through him we, have, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. All right, now this, this is what this is saying. Not only is Jesus making peace and pulling you back to God and reconciling you to God. He's also pulling some other people back to God and reconciling them. And if they're reconciled and you're reconciled, maybe you should reconcile with each other. That's what he's saying. Now this, if that doesn't make sense, let me illustrate it. I want to do volunteer hour, okay? Give me, I need four volunteers. I didn't ask anyone beforehand. I need four volunteers. You will not have to say anything, do anything, no song and dance. All I need you to do is hold a sign, okay? Give me four volunteers that can hold. You say, you can't ask for volunteers. It's church. Listen, I got the mic. I can do whatever I want, all right? So, Soph, okay, Soph is one. Uh, Daniel, number two over there, come on up. Uh, Linda, come on up. And, uh, and Mark, come on up. All right, first four hands that I saw. This is what Ephesians 2 is saying. And this, let this sink in if you're a Christian. This is saying that there are people who are peace wanters, okay? We're going to make Sophia a peace wanter, and we're going to make Daniel a peace wanter, okay? You're going to be humans. Daniel, I want you to stand right here, and Soph, I want you to stand right here so everyone can see you. They're going to represent humanity, okay? I'm going to pick who I think is the most righteous out of these two and make them the peace. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're going to pick Mark. Mark's going to be our peace holder. He's going to be God, okay? Not really, but Mark will, Mark will stand in the place of God for this illustration. The idea in the Bible is that these peace wanters are at odds with God, and they're at odds with each other. That they fight in war with each other all the time, and they're at enmity with God. And that a peacemaker, you get to be Jesus, Linda, okay? You come right here in the middle, come right in the middle of these. The peacemaker steps onto the scene and begins to grab through the blood of the cross this peace wanter and begins to bring this peace wanter over here to God, nigh to God again. Not a far off anymore, not a foreigner, now a friend, now family. And Jesus begins to get some other people and bring this one way over here to God. Now, Linda, you step to the side for just a second. Now, here's the, here's the point Ephesians 2 is making. If Jesus did this, and he did, should these two people now have an advantage to be able to get along with each other that they previously did not have? And common sense tells you, absolutely. How could they know the peace of God and both now have the same father and be in the same family but not have an advantage to get along with each other? And this is why when you read the New Testament, you see this church pop onto the scene after Jesus dies on the cross. And this church is something like the world has never seen. 
There are rich and poor, and there are bond and free, and there are male and female, and there are Jew and Gentile, and there's all of these people, the most eclectic bunch of people that would never get along, that are now, you could even say Democrat and Republican, and now they get along with each other. And they're, they're unified in Jesus and in the hope of the gospel. And the point is that if, if you have peace with God, you should definitely have peace with your fellow Christians. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, give them a hand for, for helping me out. You can just lay those signs down. And thank you for being willing to stand in front of all these pretty people. So thank you. Be careful on your way down. Use the, use the rail there. You can't, you can't miss that point. You can't just be like, oh, man, thank you so much, Jesus. I have peace with God, and I'm just going to fight with a bunch of other Christians. That's why as a pastor, it, it, it grieves me. It literally grieves me when I see people within the church fighting with each other. It grieves me when a marriage breaks up in, in any situation. I'm for marriage, and I'm for healthy marriages. But it especially grieves me with a, when a Christian husband and a Christian wife decide that they can't work it out. There should be an advantage. There should be an ability to have peaceful relationships with each other if we both know Jesus. And that's what the Bible says. Not only should, so here's the implications. The relationship between me and God should be healthier now. It's different. My relationship with other Christians, but also my relationship with those that aren't Christians. And this is tricky. The Bible says that when you now have peace with God, it's tougher to have relationships with non-Christians now and easier. So it's tougher because now you're a friend of God. And I hate to break it to you, but not everybody's a friend of God. And now I'm on Team Jesus, but not everybody's hip, hip, hooray, Team Jesus. You know that? So now when I have peace with God, guess what? God's enemies, namely the devil in the world, become my enemies in new and profound ways. And that's not fun. And sometimes this like completely blindsides people when they, when they step into faith and they begin to trust Jesus. And they're like, I, I thought it would be all peachy. I thought everyone would be happy for me. And they don't realize, no, 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 no. New levels, new devils. No, the, the world is against you now because you're on God's team. So it becomes more difficult for my non-Christian relationships. However, it should also be easier. Because now I know something of what it means to be a cat scratching the one who wants to save me. And now that I've been saved, I can take some cat scratches. And those don't affect me like they used to. And now I can be what Jesus would say is a peacemaker, right? Remember the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached? Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the children of God. You have a reputation for being a God child when you make peace with people because that doesn't normally happen. And the Bible says now, bless your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for the people that persecute you and use you. And there should be nothing of a fire-breathing Christian who's out to just destroy all the people that are against him or her. But there should be a loving, gracious, speak the truth, but in love and graciously make peace with people. 
to quote a verse, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Christians now have a new responsibility to live peaceably, not just with our, our Christian counterparts, but with the unsaved world. You get that? So the pastor, they're hard to get along with. Like now you to a cross, hard to get along with? Or like they don't like you because you vote for Trump, hard to get along with? Right? I'm pretty sure those are different. And if Jesus would make a friend of his enemies and die for them and give us that as an example, I dare say we should tone it down and calm it down just a little bit and maybe love and have some peaceful relationships as much as we can. It's not always possible, but as much as we can, our default position should be one of making peace, not making war. You get that? Last one and I'm done. Give me two minutes. If all this is true, and it is, I know I poured a lot on you today, but if all this is true, do you think it would change you, like on a day-to-day basis, if you thought about it and meditated on it and you allowed this to like be a part of your life? Do you think that the peace would begin to flow a bit more if this was just how you thought, if it was part of your operating system? I think so. This is how Isaiah put it. Isaiah said that God would keep us in perfect peace if our mind was stayed on him because we trust in him. Now, it's interesting to me when it says perfect peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. If you read that verse in Hebrew, it says that God will keep you in shalom, shalom. He'll keep you in peace, peace, or double peace, or as it's translated, Perfect peace. It's trying to communicate a peace that is different, an upgraded peace, a qualitatively different peace. And if you take just a little bit of time and you allow this to be a part of the way that you think and a part of what's in you, and you begin to just thank God on a consistent basis that Jesus reconciled you to him, that there's peace available, and you begin to think out the implications of it, I promise you, it'll change you. To the degree that you take this into your heart is the degree that you'll begin to live peaceably with those Christians or with the the non-Christians or begin to have peace manifest itself in a practical way in your life. And in a month where there's a lot of people that are without peace, I would love for you to be people of peace, to enjoy the gift that Jesus gives, peace.